America. The Sprint Network is now more reliable than ever, and I'm on a mission to prove it's the fastest. I'm traveling the country betting anyone and everyone that Sprint is faster than their network. And Sprint's winning. The Sprint LTE network is now more reliable than ever. Switch today and stop overpaying for wireless. Visit a Sprint store or Sprint.com slash network to learn more. Offer coverage not available everywhere. Speed claim based on analysis of average delivered download speeds using Nielsen and MP data. Savings on select plans. Restrictions apply. everybody and thank you for joining me again this morning on Next on the Tee. I'm your host Chris Mascaro and today I am honored to have two great gentlemen, both returning guests with me this morning. First up is going to be Steve Mona. You'll recall that Steve is the CEO of the World Golf Foundation. He is also annually named among the most powerful men in golf. Uh, we, uh, we'll talk amongst other things about all the things he's involved with re- regarding growing the game of golf, uh, the things going on with the first tee, the new drive, chip, and putt contest, the uh, economic impact that the game of golf brings to, uh, to every place it comes to. So we are excited to have him back with us. He's going to join us in just a few moments. Later in the show, we'll be joined by 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel. We'll relive uh, more memories from his great victory at Oak Hill, plus his victory over Tiger Woods at the 2006 Match Play Championship, and what it was like when he met his favorite band, Kiss, backstage after winning the PGA. Sean's a great guy, and we look forward to having him back on the show with us. He'll be here about 20 minutes from now. But before we get started, we want to kick off the show by saluting the brave men and women serving in our military and everyone listening in on the Armed Forces Sports Radio Network. Thank you for your daily sacrifices and all you do to keep the rest of us safe. We also want to thank those of you who served or have served in every branch of the military and public service. We truly appreciate what you do to preserve our freedoms and our liberties. It's through your strength and efforts that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Stephen Lee, Dennis Farrell, and all the folks at Armed Forces Sports Radio. It's an honor for us to be part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesportsradionetwork.org. We also want to thank everyone listening in on other great radio sites across the Internet, iHeartRadio, as well as Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, Blog Talk Radio, Player.fm. And like I say, um, we can't thank all of you for listening to the show every single week, downloading the show as a podcast. You can also find us on iTunes as well. We want to give a special shout-out to our good friends over at uh, LastWordOnSports.com, Mike Novak, Ben Kerr, Mark Medeski, the great staff over there. Uh, if you are looking for a new place to find everything you're going to want to know across every sport, not just the major ones, every sport, Go to lastwordonsports.com. Their site has uh, fantastic content. Their staff of writers are outstanding. You're going to be glad you check that site for your sports news every day. So go there and then bookmark it. Again, lastwordonsports.com. And if someone's dragging you to the mall or to the grocery store or you're just tired of the same old, same old on your commute, take us with you. You can download a couple of apps, player.fm and Stitcher. You can download those apps on your smartphones, your mobile phones, and then uh, you can stream or download our show and then uh, take us with you. We'd love to be a part of your commute or, like I say, when you're out and about, we'd love to be there with you. All right. We've got our first guest already hanging on the line with us. So now back on the Kyven Foods guest line is Steve Mona. Let me give you a little more background on Steve. He is the CEO of the World Golf Foundation, the organization that manages the World Golf Hall of Fame, the first tee in golf 2020. He was the CEO of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America for 14 years, the executive director of the Georgia State Golf Association here in Atlanta for over a decade. And like I said at the top, he is annually named by Golf Digest as one of the most powerful people in the game of golf, and I am excited that he is back and next on the tee with me this this morning. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for coming back on the show. Well, good morning to you, Chris. It's great to be back with you. I always enjoy my time with you. I appreciate that. 
you know, Steve, you're always on the go. I read that you actually only get to play about 25 rounds of golf a year, which is a bit ironic for me for the guy who is the CEO of the World Golf Foundation, like I say, one of the most powerful men in the sport. Do you ever get the urge when people are tugging on you and wanting you to come here or there and say, you know, hang on, can I get a round of golf in here at some point? <laughs> well, I love to play the game, and despite the fact 25 is probably about the right number, uh, I am able to get out and practice and uh get out to the practice tee a fair amount. So I probably have a golf club in my hand every week, just not for long periods of time, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, I guess that's something. So, Steve, the RNA has a big vote coming up here regarding female membership. How closely are you working with them on that? Well, I'm actually a member of the RNA, and uh, they're one of our board organizations of the World Golf Foundation. And that vote actually took place on Thursday of this week, and I'm delighted to uh, report that uh, the club overwhelmingly voted to admit women as members, number one. There you and go. then number two, so that was important, very important. And then number two, as important, is the fact that about 15 or so women will be fast-tracked and become members uh, probably before the end of the year because the normal process calls for about a five or so or longer year waiting period. And if you think about it, that would have been a long time before any women would have been part of the club. So the club committee is going to fast track a number of women, which I think are great. So we'll see a pretty good population of women rather quickly in the club. That's fantastic. Is it it still hush-hush, or do you have a couple of names you could throw out? I'm not privy to that, so it would be – speculative who those might be but i do know one thing just based upon what i've read that um the club's interested in women who have um, made contributions to the game and who have been part of the game so um that may um give you some indication right the direction the club's going to move okay I uh, I read an article on the USGA's website about how golf courses benefit people and wildlife. So, you know, not only just, you know, for the players out there, but for, you know, for the wildlife in the surrounding area. The article talked about how preserving the green spaces that golf courses provide improves the environmental quality for everybody. And the article goes on to say that the USGA supported 90 university studies and seven research projects to evaluate what the relationship is between golf and the environment. And among other things, the report states that golf improves the, you know, the air quality, absorbs and filters rainwater, and restores formerly damaged land areas like landfills and mining sites that golf courses come in and actually cleaned up. Can you talk about you know, those studies and what golf's overall environmental impact has been? Absolutely. Sustainability is a huge part of golf's focus today and will be, for the foreseeable future. In fact, I don't see a day where it won't be part of the important issues that golf is addressing. There are several things to keep in mind. First of all, that um, golf courses occupy over 2 million acres in the United States alone and create tremendous green wow. spaces uh, in, in largely urban areas. And so that by itself is significant. And as you pointed out, golf courses actually serve as filters uh, for air quality, for water quality, and the best way to think about this is that if you properly site, design, construct, and maintain a golf course, it will actually enhance a natural environment and not detract from it, as some have um, put forward over the years. So we believe that golf courses are actually part of the solution with respect to our sustainability issues. Now, of course, we have to be responsible as an industry, and we're doing that, only about 15% of golf courses are using um, water that's being bought from um, essentially the city or the municipality. So most of the, the golf courses are using either reclaimed water or water uh, from lakes that they've created on their own property. So golf courses actually are part of the solution, and we're really proud of that as an industry. Earlier this year, Steve, uh, we all saw you know a couple of major golf courses uh, sort of pitching in in this in this idea of environmentally um, 
um, sound, if you will, uh, movement. Uh, we saw what how Pinehurst was restored to its original design with natural vegetation, centerline watering to reduce their maintenance expenses and their water consumption. Valhalla reduced the number of irrigation heads from 3,000 down to 800, which also lowered their water consumption too. Is this is this something that you and the, and the major golf governing organizations are going to be encouraging more and more courses to do to be more environmentally friendly and to make the game more affordable ultimately uh, for everyone to play? Yeah, that's exactly right. And you hit on two important points. One is the environmental sustainability of a golf facility is critical, and that's what uh, – events like what you saw at the U.S. Open this year with respect to how Pinehurst uh, was presented, that really hopefully sets an example. Now, not every golf course can go with that look, but we think that if we're playing our National Open Championship on a course with that kind of a look, it will encourage others to do so as well. And then secondly, you get into the economics, which is huge, because sustainability goes beyond just environmental matters. It also speaks to economic sustainability and one of the issues that we have to confront as a game is the cost of it and maintenance typically after a course is in place is the highest cost ongoing that a facility has so if that can be reduced or at least moderated then obviously it's going to make the game more affordable so everybody wins in that equation yeah I, you know, I saw Sea Pines. The Sea Pines Resort reduced their waste management cost by forty thousand dollars and diverted two hundred and fifteen tons of waste from from a local landfill. So, kind of getting back to the point, uh, you know, I was looking at the article a moment ago that talks about, you know, restoring land. That's that's another piece, right? You know, going into former landfills or other sites that you know might have been used, you know, back in the day for something. It mentions mining sites, but going in and reclaiming that land, cleaning it up, if you will. And then actually building a golf course on top of that, boy, that's, that seems like a, you know, a couple of wins at least. Absolutely. And, see, that's one thing that makes uh, golf unique. We can actually construct courses on degraded property and in areas that you really can't use for really any other purpose. But yet they make great golf courses in some cases, and they essentially take a blighted piece of property. That they restore it. Uh, it's environmentally sustainable. It's economically sustainable. It becomes an asset for the community. So that's a that's a role that golf can play as far as contributing to the health of an overall community, which is something that gets overlooked a lot when people think about the game. Yeah, so it sort of goes right into the economic impact, right? The you know the economic impact that a golf tournament can have on their communities is probably something to your point. People don't realize all that well. You know, I read that last year's PGA Championship up in Rochester brought a, over a hundred million dollars to their local economy. I'm sure it's got to be something very similar to you know what happened or what it brought to Louisville. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, at the at the PGA Championship, have you heard, you know, the numbers come in for what the economic impact has been to the Louisville community? The uh, the numbers were very similar to the year before, so somewhere uh, north of a hundred million. So once again, it was a tremendous economic impact, and that's really just part of the picture. When you look at go- golf on a national basis and all elements of golf, it generates almost seventy billion dollars of economic impact to the U.S. economy. It employs nearly 2 million Americans and creates about $55 billion in wage income. So a lot of people, those 2 million people, are making a living from the game, besides providing, obviously, uh, great recreational opportunities. So golf really is a major part of our economy and also contributes uh, mightily to the charitable impact of our communities as well. Right. So that that also now that gets into, you know, the health benefits that the game of golf uh, brings to, you know, people to play the game. Right. I read a study uh, by the Karolinska Institute over in Sweden, and they found that the death rate for golfers is 40 percent lower than other people of the same sex, age and socioeconomic status, which equates to about a five year increase in life expectancy. So, you know, is that something also that, you know, the governing bodies are looking at to, you know, I think we talk a little bit about health, you know, you, you, and you can, you know, uh, make the stretch, you know, you're walking, especially if you're out there walking from a cardiovascular uh, perspective, but I think that's a that's another thing that we don't hear enough about. I think you know people kind of snicker when they say you know are, are golfers athletes. You know, well, 
you know, you, you walk in how far? Five, six miles if you're walking a golf course in the course of a day, you know, up and down hills and that sort of thing. But, you know, and the exercise piece is, is also a big benefit that I don't think gets enough attention. Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the areas that we've tried to promote uh, much more strongly over the last several years. But the fact is that there are health and wellness benefits that are associated with golf. You mentioned uh, walking. If you w- walk 18 holes of golf, you're going to take uh, about 10,000 or more steps, which is a daily uh, recommended allowance, if you will, um, for right. healthy individuals. Uh, number two, you're going to burn about 2,000 calories, and it obviously goes down if you're uh, if you, if you uh, ride in a cart. But even having said that, you're still going to take uh, riding a, in a cart about 1,500 calories or so that you're going to burn. So the fact is that there are uh, significant health and wellness benefits associated with the game. The uh, Humana Challenge PGA Tour event each year actually highlights that, and that's what that event's all about. And so uh, we know that we as an industry need to do a better job of informing the general public of the benefits to to playing golf from a health and wellness standpoint. And, And they're there, and it's just a matter of communicating them better. One of the other initiatives that uh, that you've taken up is also trying to raise golf participation. I know, I think last time we talked about that there's a target of about 30 million by the year 2017, and you guys do such an outstanding job, you know, with the first team introducing kids to the game. Talk about, you know, talk about what's going on with the first team. Plus, now, like I said in the intro, you've got the new drive chip and punt contest that takes place, you know, every year now at Augusta National. Talk about developing golf's next generation of players. Yeah, absolutely. There's actually five different initiatives that um, that the industry is getting behind now, which I'll just briefly uh, touch on. But you mentioned um, the first tee. I'll just start there. Uh, the first tee, which is a, a youth development program that uses golf as a platform to teach life skills, uh, reached uh, more than 3.6 million young people in 2013. And the first tee has a goal to reach 10 million young people uh, between 2012 and 2017, and so we're well on our way of reaching that goal. And the whole premise of the first team, obviously, is to create the next generation of golfers, but also okay. to create the next generation of leaders because uh, character development, uh, the nine core values, is a big part of the first team, as are the nine healthy habits to teach young people uh, good choices with respect to diet, nutrition, etc. So. It's a very comprehensive program. It's been um, very successful and will continue to grow um, as we move forward. You also mentioned the drive, chip, and putt. That's a relatively new uh, program that was initiated uh, uh, by the uh, Masters Tournament, the USGA and the PGA of America. And I can tell you uh, this year that there were 256 local qualifying sites uh, that were conducted in all 50 states and all 41 PGA sections during the months of May, June, and July. We'll see the finals again the Sunday prior to the Masters uh, next year, where you'll see 40 boys and 40 girls compete. Um, I haven't seen the total numbers this year, but um, I can tell you that it's in the tens of thousands of young people will have gone through uh, some form of qualifying all over the country. So that's really proven to be a great grassroots program to get uh, young kids interested in the game. Yeah, no, that was a brilliant idea. Whoever came up with the idea of putting that together, particularly at Augusta National and having it there, that's a stroke of genius. I think that's going to do a world of good for the next generation and developing people to have or kids to have interest in the game. Sort of dovetailing off that a little bit, Steve, Get the Get Golf Ready program, that the PGA has, you can go on their site, the PGA.com or PGA.com. But I think that's another good thing, you know, because I, I, I think the, the the conception of the game of golf is that it's incredibly difficult. And I'm not going to say that it's not because, you know, in my mind, it, it takes you 10 years just to get bad at the game. But playing <laughs> it and getting people interested in the game and get the Get Golf Ready program to get you some lessons Right, the beginners get them into the game, get them some lessons at a, at an affordable price. I think is another great idea. Well, it's uh, it's been the golf industry's uh, number one adult player development initiative for the past five years, 
uh, in uh, the course of this year, we'll have about 4,400 certified uh, facilities throughout the country. And by the way, if you go to um, uh, getgolfready.com and there's an area on the website where you can put your zip code in, and um, all the facilities within about a 10-mile radius of your zip code will appear, so you'll know which ones are closest to your own uh, location in case you're interested in participating in the program. But we also know that we'll have about 100,000 people go through the program this year. And the whole focus on it, as you suggest, Chris, is to get people ready uh, to play the game in a fast, fun, and affordable manner. It's five group lessons with no more than eight to a group, $99, and it includes an on-course component uh, with each lesson. And in addition to that, it also helps to teach people about the conventions of the game because some people have never played the game find some of the etiquette and just some of the traditions of the game a little hard uh, perhaps to uh, grasp. So this also teaches that piece. So our goal is when you get done with those five lessons, you're pretty comfortable around golf and around a golf course, and you can venture out on your own and play the game. The other thing we know is that after the first year, uh, 80%, it's more than 80% actually, of the people who graduate from the program are still in the game a year later. And five years later, that number declines to only 60%, which is still a very strong retention rate. So we know the program works. We know people stay in the game. It's just a matter now of getting more people into the program. Steve, one of one of the things that I think is important uh, for our listeners, and I like to, you know, you've been on the show with me before. You actually joined us as well on, our, on on the football side on a Thursday night tailgate show. But one of the things that I think is important for our listeners to continue here is the charitable contributions that the, the golf industry and the PGA make. You know, when you look at the amount of dollars that you guys generate uh, for you know different charities across the country, it, it's more than Major League Baseball, the, N- the NBA, the NFL, and the NHL combined. Talk about you know the, the dollars that uh, that the uh, PGA or that the golf industry gives back, if you will. Well, the golf industry on an annual basis uh, generates uh, about 3.9, so almost four billion dollars a year uh, for charitable. Uh, causes, almost all of which are unrelated to golf. And so the way that that takes place is there are about 15,000 facilities in the country. About 75% or 12,000 of them conduct, on average, uh, 12 charitable events. And on average, each one generates about $27,000 to charity. So you can do the math there. That's where the vast majority of the dollars come from. And here's the other thing. There are about 25 million people who play golf in the United States, 12 million or almost 50% of them participate in a charitable tournament during the course of the year. And that's the power. That's really where the majority of the money comes from that then gets dispersed to these charities. In addition to that, we surveyed the charities themselves, and two-thirds of the charities that are the beneficiaries of golf events say that those golf events are either somewhat or very important to the annual budget of that particular charity. So you can just do the math there that um, a significant amount of charities are heavily reliant on golf charitable events to essentially underwrite their operation for the year. Right. So it's critically important to the American way of life that golf be used as a charitable fundraising vehicle. Yeah, no question. One more, Steve, before we let you go is, as sports fans, we always hear about the media battles that go on for the rights to, to the NFL or Major League Baseball, but the USGA is going to have a new partner next year, and they'll be moving away from NBC and ESPN and going over to Fox, who paid $1.2 billion for the rights to, to the U.S. Open and their other the other USGA championships over a 12-year period of time. How do you feel about golf's growth within the media? Well, it's been tremendous, and if you you mentioned the uh, the USGA deal with Fox, uh, you should also uh, note that uh, the PGA of America did a long-term deal with NBC last year for the Ryder Cup, uh, so that NBC has that out well into the future. And then a couple of years prior, the PGA Tour did long-term deals uh, with CBS, NBC, and Golf Channel, 
which are now together, obviously, right? Um, for its event. So, um, from a from a if you look at golf from the standpoint as an entertainment vehicle, it's really never been stronger than it is today. There are uh, there are more dollars in the game coming from the entertainment side, whether it be TV rights fees, whether it be sponsorships, and that's making the game very strong at that level. The amount of people that are watching the game is at an all-time high. If you uh, take a cumulative uh, account of how many people are tuning in during the course of the year, so golf is very, very healthy from the standpoint of an entertainment uh, vehicle, and we just need to capitalize on that because uh, we know that there is a translation from people who get into the game as fans and then ultimately as participants. But the general health uh, is very strong when you evaluate golf from an entertainment standpoint. Yeah, and I think that's something that uh, people have a misconception about, right? And I think we touched on it a little bit last time. But, you know, the, the thought always is that if Tiger Woods isn't in the event or winning the event, people aren't watching. And that's just not true, right? In terms of the ratings of an individual tournament, Tiger definitely moves the needle. There's no question about it. But if you look at it from the standpoint of how many people on a cumulative basis tune in to say, PGA Tour or just uh, televised golf during the course of the year, uh, he really doesn't have any impact on that. People are going to watch their golf. It may not be as concentrated around one event, and it and that's definitely the case with Tiger, most definitely. But during the course of a year, uh, the the actual number of people tuning in has, has continued to increase. So, and, and we're delighted with that. And then furthermore, with golf sure. coming into the Olympics, been overlooked too. Golf's going to become part of the Olympics in 2016. That's going to fuel some more growth in the game uh, on a worldwide basis in the countries that previously haven't really been part of the golf culture, if you will. So the long-term view for golf as an entertainment property is very strong. Yeah, no, it's it really is, and that's and that's really the the message that I was hoping to get out there, and by having you on the show, is to make sure that everyone really understands the game of golf is growing. It's growing from a media perspective. The impact that it has on the economies and the countries, you know, that it's in is enormous. The charitable contributions that it gives to you know to organizations that are doing some good things, and to your point, not all of them have to do with the game of golf is 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 outstanding. So thanks for being back on the show with me again uh, this morning, Steve, and to put that out there because I think that's a message that, you know, golf fans, our listeners, and people in general just need to hear. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Chris, and it's a pleasure to be with you, and uh, I look forward to uh, doing it again soon. I hope so. Take care, Steve. Um, uh, before, just one other thing. How can our listeners follow you uh, over social media and to continue to, you know, follow up on the message? Well, the best thing to do is just to um, to follow us through our uh, website, and the best one for that is the Golf 2020 website, and then all the various social media elements are evident through that, um, golf2020.org, uh, uh, and then also wearegolf.org are the two websites. We didn't really get into our relationship uh, with uh, the Congress in Washington, D.C. during this uh segment, but um, we have a pretty significant presence, and We Are Golf is part of that. So those are the two ways that I would encourage listeners to uh, keep track of our activities, and they can connect real well with us through uh, through either of those vehicles. Great. Next time, we'll, we will get into more about We Are Golf, and I can't thank you enough for being uh, here this morning, Steve. Hopefully, we have you back real soon to get into that, and in the meantime, uh, all the best to you and your family and everyone at the World Golf Foundation. Thanks very much, Chris. Appreciate being uh, part of your show this morning. All right. Take care, Steve. Thanks again. You bet. Steve Mona, great guy. Again, uh, take a look at the sites that he mentions, the We Are Golf site. Yeah, and they, they uh, you know, Golf Day was here a, a few months ago, and they uh, he and several big names within the golf organization uh, were talking to Congress about the economic impact that the game of golf has. So check it out there online. All right, we've got our next guest uh, already hanging on the line with us. Want to get right to him. Now joining me on the Kyven Foods guest line is Sean McKeel. Let me remind you about Sean's background. He's originally from Orlando, Florida, later moved to Memphis, Tennessee. Why? Because his father's one of the original pilots for FedEx. He actually attended the same high school that I did, Christian Brothers. We were just a few years apart. 
Uh, he actually played collegiately at Indiana University, turned pro in 1992. He won once on the Nike Tour, now the Web.com Tour, at the Greensboro Open in 1999. The year prior, he won internationally at the Singapore Open. Uh, we all remember his fantastic win at the 2003 PGA Championship. He won that tournament with one of the greatest finishing shots in PGA Tour history. And I am certainly honored to have him back with me this morning on Next on the Tee. Hey, Sean, thanks for being here. Hi, Chris. Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. You? Oh, all is great. I'm uh, sitting here in the parking lot of my hotel in Nashville. Got a uh, big soccer tournament this weekend with my son. So, uh, it's my chance to uh, to be dad. There you go. Good for you. Yeah. John, before we get on the course with you, I, I read a couple of stories that I bet not many people know about you. First, you're a big KISS fan, and you actually got to go backstage with them right after you won the PGA back in 03. I love the picture of you with Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Could you share how that happened? You know, I um, I've been a Kiss fan for a long time. You know, everybody knows they just finished up their uh, 40th year uh, kind of tour um, last month with Def Leppard. And um, you know, I, I grew up kind of listening to their music and um, actually got a chance to meet them in 19, I think it was 1997 in Greensboro, and it was just kind of a quick meeting and got to know their manager Doc McGee a little bit. And then after I won uh, the PGA Championship. Um, I got a phone call. I was home actually. Uh, I didn't realize that I'd gotten into the Bridgestone the week before, or the you know the week following the PGA. So I had already had plans to fly home, which I did. And um, I get a phone call, and and it's uh, it was Paul Stanley calling me, inviting me to come up. And of course, by now it's been arranged that PJ Tour was going to uh, form a relationship with them for that next week in Columbus. Um, put me backstage and meet the guys, and it was great because the new guitar player Tommy Thayer and I have really forged a great friendship. Um, you know, over the last 10, 11 years. And um, it, it's been an interesting one. I think uh, I did a I did a feature for Golf Magazine uh, mid-2000s with me on the cover doing uh, Dressed Up as, as Tommy and, and the original dark guitar player Ace Fraley. So it was interesting trying to fit into those, those spandex pants, you know. But um, I was a little thinner back then. I was probably about 175, and I'm about 190 now. So um, got to gotta work on that. But you know, I just I just love their music and uh, got a chance to meet them. And Tommy Tommy's a, is a golfer. He loves golf. Doc McGee, their manager, is a, is a golfer as well. And so that's really how our relationship has really kind of kicked off. Now, I took my daughter, she's seven, to her first Kiss concert in June here in Nashville at the Bridgestone Arena. And we went backstage and talked to the guys and got our picture made. And anybody can see see that on twitter with me and my daughter but um uh, so it was her first first kiss concert and uh wow it's been, it's been a great great friendship that i have with those guys that's fantastic i also read a story back in 1994 you were honored by the sons of the confederate veterans for your bravery after you saved two people from a sinking car that happened yeah. while you were at a golf tournament in north carolina which sounds like an amazing story what happened well, yeah, there's a, a guy I was traveling with, um, Doug Barron, who actually played the tour and um, for a number of years um, before he decided to give it up. We were playing the uh, T.C. Jordan tour, which is, has now become the Hooters tour. And, um, you know, both of us, we'd only been a pro probably, you know, a year and a half. I turned pro in 92, and I think he did as well. And uh, we were just going out to play a practice round. And we were in New Bern, North Carolina. Uh, the hotel was located right on the Noose River, which for anybody that's been there or seen it knows how wide the river is. Um, anyway, there was uh, this car, and, and like the, the parking lot was water level. The road was actually a little bit more elevated, and we heard this commotion. We saw this car <clears throat> go off this embankment, which was probably 20 feet, and it, I mean, he and I were like, wow. But you don't know what. You see this alley filming a commercial, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we ran over there, and because we were on – river level there was nobody else down there and uh i ran over and uh, you know i was in my golf clothes and we were required to wear pants as well so i uh i stripped down to my boxer shorts and i swam out which at the time was probably i don't know 20 30 40 yards off off the uh off the shore wow. and um another guy that owned the gas station on the corner also had scaled down this embankment and there were two elderly people in there um a, a couple that um had been grocery shop we found out later um, she was in the front seat. He was in the back. 
Um, I swam out there. By the time I get out there, the, the other guy comes out, and he somehow we get the front door, the front door open because the the windshield had collapsed. But by now the water is, you know, the car's going under and it's getting pulled out. Right. Of the, you know. So anyway, the guy he got the lady out, and uh, the gentleman in the back wouldn't come out. And so I just grabbed him and yanked him out of the car, and he was a pretty good sized guy, um, you know, not heavy set in any way, but just a, a just a, a tall wise, and um, pulled him out and got him. Didn't have to swim too far before we could touch. I mean, it was probably five or six feet deep, probably where where the car ultimately sunk. But you know, obviously it was getting deeper. But we got him back to back to shore, and by now the, the ambulances and fire department and stuff have been there, and. Um, you know, just pulled them out and pulled them back up to shore, and um, I kind of went on my merry way, I guess. You know, did a few little interviews, I guess, with the people, and um, anyway, it was something I'll never forget. It, it uh, really made an impact but, on me and, uh, you know, my family. I, I remember, you know, because this is before the age of cell phones, but, you know, my dad had to, he told me later that he had to calm me down because I was talking a mile a minute. I was pretty amped up, I guess, but uh, it was uh, just, it was an incredible uh, oper- you know, incredible really the way that it, it kind of unfolded because we stood there not knowing going on and then you realize nobody else is going in to help so there's really kind of not much else you can do but you know those stories are presented every single day I mean we re- read about those great stories and um, you know I think any one of us if given that opportunity would do the same thing so it's a you know proud moment in my in my life that I was able to uh, to help some people that were in need, uh, but uh, uh, I'll never forget it. Yeah, do do you, do you ever find out what happened? I mean, you say the guy in the back seat didn't want to come out. Was was it a planned event? Well, what happened was is, is is they had come down and they had been at the grocery store. Their their trunk was filled with groceries. They had come down. There was a, a pretty steep hill, and and uh, they had, I guess come unexpectedly. Uh, the light had turned red. Well, instead of hitting the brake. She floored it and hit the gas and, uh, you know, probably went another 50 yards before she went to this barricade and, and then, of course, 20 to 30 feet down to the to the right. uh, water. And, uh, I mean, it's amazing the impact didn't kill them. Um, right. You know, back in those days where people wearing seatbelts, you know, I can't say that I was. Uh, you know, so um, it's hard to say, but uh, they were very lucky. And I think... I think both of them have since passed. Um, you know, somebody sent me a note a few years ago, and, um, you know, they were both in their probably early 70s at the time anyway. So you look back 20-some years ago, 21 years ago right. now. It, uh, so, yeah. Anyway, like I said, something wow. I'll never forget. Yeah, amazing story. Sean, in, in 2003, uh, you after having won the PGA, you got to play in the Grand Slam of golf with the guys who won – the four majors that year. So Jim Furyk, Mike Weir, Ben Curtis were were a part of the foursome getting to play in that event. Was that a fun event to be a part of for you, or was there some serious competition going on between the four of you? Yeah, I think the I think the first day I think we were all kind of loose. And uh, look, it was a it's a beautiful resort on Kauai, and uh, you know it was fun because you got to take the PG of America really, you know, splurge splurges on the on the guys that, that get in. Um they fly you over uh first class. I think you can bring you know you can bring your family. I think you can bring four other guests. There's like eight or ten of you over there. Um it's just it was a good way to kind of get to know the other players away from all the I would say the kind of the media hype um yeah. of what we had just kind of accomplished and everything. But uh it was a tremendous event. And I think every year, you know, I, I get I'm disappointed when I see that some guys uh, decide not to go play, um, and they don't. I don't think they really understand. It's not. It's not really um, about the money. Um, it's just about getting to know the other guys and and doing something. Uh, you know, high regard, high respect for the PGA of America and what they do. I mean, I think it's a unique event. It was a little nerve wracking, also because it was the first time that, that TNT was going to broadcast it in live. Um, and as you know, golfers. Uh, we have some pretty colorful language out there on the golf course. And I think that was the first thing that we were really counseled on um, was, Hey, you know, you know, Bill Cratchit and uh, you know, those guys were <laughs> on live TV here. So let's kind of keep this a, a family oriented event. And uh, I was nervous about that, 
you know, I, I, you know, I think we all kind of mutter under our breath a little bit when nobody would even hear you or even be able to read your lips. But you know, things things happen, you know, and of course it's eighteen holes. So, um, you know, like I said, it was a great resort. It was it was just fun being over there. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was a it was a obviously a sense of accomplishment to have qualified event. I mean, I think that may be the hardest event to qualify for. I mean, we talk about the Masters, we talk hey. about all these great championships around the world. But if you think about the Grand Slam of golf, may be the hardest event to qualify for. And uh, it felt pretty special. So um, I look back at it with a lot of fond memories. Uh, there was a lot going on that week. There was uh, a lot of fun. There was uh, a lot of activities that they had scheduled and arranged for us. Uh, we could lay by the pool, did some dune buggy stuff. Um, it, it was just a lot of fun. And I'd love to get back. But. Yeah, no doubt. I bet you would. I'd love to see you back. Um, during the course of that event, I saw the PGA put together a list of 20 questions that they asked you guys, and I'm curious about some of the answers you gave and you know how they might have changed you know in the in the years since. First, you said your favorite golf course was Oak Hill, and your favorite hole was in golf was the 18th there. And who can blame you after the seven yeah. iron you hit there to win the PGA? But is that still is that your favorite golf memory? Or is it still your favorite, you know, your favorite golf course and favorite hole to play? Well, I mean, I think those questions are, are um, you know, obviously geared uh, to try to generate a certain response. And I think, you know, I gave the right response. I mean, I love Oak Hill. I love those types of golf courses. I really do. I, I've always loved the old traditional tree lines, uh, tree line golf courses. Um, you know, when I went when I went back last year and played uh, at Oak Hill for the PGA, the golf course was was much different than it was when I won in 2000. Um, but it still had the same feel. They've 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 left a lot of that intact. The trees, just the rolling hills. I, I just I love those styles of golf courses. You know, when people think about your favorite golf course, um, it can be a it can be a great memory, um, or or is it or is it going to be uh, the most fun that you've ever had on the golf course? I, I don't I don't really right. know the answer to that. There's there's been a lot of great things that have happened to me. I've experienced a lot of uh, fun moments with with by myself with my father. I mean, one of the best events that I can recall being in was right after the PGA was was getting invited to play the Dunhill Links Championship by Johan Rupert, who runs Dunhill and Cartier and all those companies. And uh, I was able to take my father um, on this trip, and he was going to play as my partner. So that eight eight or nine days <clears throat> excuse me, that I was in St. Andrews, Scotland, with my father was maybe some of the best um, golf and the most fun golf that I've ever been able to play. Um, but, uh, I, look, I still love Oak Hill. I remember every single hole. I remember every single shot that I hit on Sunday. Um you know, it's definitely going to be the most memorable um, course. It had the right. most impact, really, on me as a professional golfer. Um, so, you know, it's right it's right there at the top. I mean, you know, I've played a lot of golf courses, and uh, those are the style of courses I like, the old traditional um, styles. You mentioned your father, and uh, in those 20 questions, you know, they asked you about a dream foursome that you would, you know, put together, and you said your father, Dr. Kerry Middlecoff, and Jack Nicholas. Now, Mr. Nicholas and Mr. Middlecoff also won at Oak Hill, but is yeah. that is that dream foursome still intact? I know Mr. Middlecoff was, is uh, from Memphis, where, where, you yeah. know, where you live, or where, you know, so is that still the dream foursome for you? Well, you know, yeah. I mean, I've, look, I've played with Mr. Nicholas on several occasions. Um, I got to play with him in, in one of my first practice rounds at the Masters in 2000 and, um, well, in, wow. yeah, in 2004. So um, I've got pictures of him. My, my son was, was, you know, uh, not even a year old. Um, and so we um, – uh, my father is always going to be included. Um, I would include my mother if with she was off. Now, my mother passed away four years ago, and um, – you know, but my mother, if she would play golf, I would have included her because they had a huge amount to do with me um, going into golf, uh, becoming a professional. Um, you know, there's countless stories of my mom and I driving to these AJGA events. I remember one, we got lost in um, Texarkana trying to find um, a golf course. I mean, we were going to Louisiana, and we were going that way for some reason. Um, and we were driving around for GPS and all that. But, you know, they, they, they did so much for me. Uh, growing up, that uh, she would be included. Now, Kerry Middlecoff, I'd met on several occasions. You know, he passed away, but um, was a huge legend around Memphis and uh, really around the golfing world. 
Um, right. And, uh, you know, I kind of, I got three different eras. You know, I got me in there, and I got Mr. Nicholas in there that played, obviously, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then I got Kerry Milkoff, who's pretty much done with playing golf, you know, probably in the early 70s. Um, you know, but um, just the stories that I heard, you know, Lauren Roberts is a good friend of mine, and he, he knew Kerry pretty well. And uh, just the stories that he told were legendary. And um, I mean, it'd just be neat to be out with him. I mean, there's a lot of great golfers uh, that you, you'd like to, to, to meet, but you know, my dad will always be in that, in that force. You mentioned playing with Mr. Nicholas in a practice round in the masters in Oh four. So uh, I'm imagining that's your first time at, you know, playing at Augusta national. What, what was that like to take a, a, a trip around Augusta national with Mr. Nicholas? Well, you know, I had, I had, uh, I had known the Nicholas family for a while. Gary played, at Ohio State when I was at Indiana. So I'd been around them a little bit. And then after I turned professional and got back, got onto the PJ Tour, I signed with Golden Bear Sports Management. So I had been in Mr. Nicholas's office there uh, in Palm Beach and had gotten a chance to talk to him and gotten to know his sons. And, and uh, the only one I haven't met is, is, is Nan, the daughter. Um, but, you know, to be able to go around with, uh, with him – and just have pick his brain a little bit about uncertain shots and and everything. Now, the golf course had just changed. I think that was the first year um, when they had lengthened the golf course and made all the changes, significant changes to the golf course there. So the course had changed, and it was interesting that we went, we got to 17, and uh, we went back to where he had made that putt, where everybody knows Vernon Lundquist went, yes, sir, you know, and uh, he. Um, uh, he, he's kind of gone on to tell me that he went back the next year and that putt broke differently. So, uh, you know, they change the greens every year. I think they, they kind of kill off the greens, and I don't know if they dig them up or if they just tear the top layer, layer of soil off to uh, to kind of get new grass on the greens. But um, he said that he went back the next year and hit that same putt and it broke, broke a different way. So uh, <laughs> it was fun. I mean, but to answer your question quickly, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was uh, – um, to be out there, the, the, amount, the amount of respect that he commanded from the fans, uh, and they were just aligned, and it was it was fun to be a part of that. And uh, but again, this game has given me a lot of a lot of great memories, and that that's another one that that uh, you know sticks with me. So a couple of days later, right, you're you're, you're going to be you know teeing off for the first time in the Masters. Now there's eight months between when you won the PGA and the opening round of the 2004 Masters. Can you describe what's the feeling like when when you're standing up on the first tee and the Masters starter says four, please, the reigning PGA <laughs> champion Sean McKeel now driving? Yeah, I mean it was pretty quick like that, you know. Um, well, you know, another cool thing that happened to me was that I was playing behind Arnold Palmer. And Arnold Palmer, wow. that was going to be his last Masters. Yeah. So I was paired with Colin Montgomery and Jay Haas. Now, that round took, you know, maybe you can go back and find it, how long it took. It took at least six hours to play. Um, because wow. every uh, every tee, every green, Mr. Palmer was, was getting a standing ovation. Uh, right. And... So it just took a long time to play uh, that round. But but I do remember that was, uh, you know, pretty incredible to be paired, you know, right behind this man who has done, you know, so much for the game. Um, and maybe that took away some of the nerves. I don't know. I mean, I was ready to go. And I had a good pairing. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed Jay and Colin, of course, and I. We've played, we played quite a bit since then. Um, but... Um, you know, I was playing great golf. I really was. I I, uh, I felt like my preparation was there. Uh, it was just a matter of not how I was going to handle the greens. And I ultimately ended up with seven three-putts that week. I finished 21st or 22nd, and I had seven three-putts. So that was a little bit disappointing. But um, just standing there with the starters and the fans and, and just the amount of respect that these people had for uh, the championship, the course, uh, the guys in the green jacket, it was uh, – uh, it was the quietest I've ever heard anybody on a first tee. And uh, and I usually don't mind a little noise. So um, I got the first tee shot off and, off and running. And, and then uh, all of us are normally good. Once the first tee shot's off and away and not in too much <laughs> right. trouble, we're, we're happy just to kind of be moving on, you know. It's funny. You know, the first tee, when you're standing there, 
you just feel like you're on a neck. You just feel like you're on a stage, and people are just there staring at you. And it's difficult to kind of comprehend and and uh, the feeling that you get. It's not always a great feeling. I mean, you know, you, a lot of times you get to the tee five, six minutes early, and you're just standing around thinking, "Oh man, I just want to hurry up and get this get this over with." And uh, and then once you get going, you know, you kind of settle in. And for the most part, you can play golf without having to wait for too too long on the tee, so you don't get that feeling again. But uh, that was. You know, really, it was my third major. Or no, I guess that was, let's say, my first master. So, you know, I only played a few majors championships, uh, you know, prior to that. I think that was my fourth major, now that I think about it. I played two U.S. Opens, a PGA that I won, and then, yeah, then the master. So it was nerve-wracking, but it was exciting. My family was there. Uh, my son my son was there, and he was, you know, six months old. So, um uh, it was exciting to be able to share all those experiences with my family. Yeah, and you know, so at every moment since then, right? Particularly, you know, in the in the years when your son became older, it, your family. It, are you conscious of your family? You know, being there at, on the tee and then walking the golf course with you. Or are you so laser focused that really everything just sort of fades off into the background? Uh, I think pretty much like the latter. I mean, I. I um... I, I love it when they're there. It gives them an opportunity to kind of be out there and, and see what I do. Now, my kids are getting a little bit older. My son's 10 and my daughter's 7. So I haven't been as active on the tour in the last couple of years. But <clears throat> really the last time I remember being out for, for um, when I was in contention was when Luke Donald won in two, it was 2011 in Tampa. I was He and I were in the second or third to last group that day. I was playing great that week. And, uh, you know, I think I shot one or two over on Sunday, and he, he ended up winning the tournament. But they were out there for a few holes, and it was exciting for me to be out there while I had a chance to win. And, um, you know, although it was disappointing in the end, um, you know, they were, they were finally starting to get an understanding of what it was that I do or, or that I did, you know, when I was playing so well on the tour. But, um, you know, I miss that. You know, my son is getting to the age now where, um, you know, he wants to come out to some events, but you know, there's none for me to get in. I got, I got to get off my rear end and start playing a little bit better to get into these tournaments. You know, he and I are both kind of quietly, you know, looking forward to the Champions Tour in four years um, because he'll be 15 and he'll be able to come out and caddy for me some. And uh, so I look forward to that. But um, they're really kind of oblivious. They're so busy with what they're doing. Uh, there's a lot of things going on in their lives that, uh, you know, getting on an airplane and coming to watch dads like golf is not at the top of the list for them, for sure. So, um I need to do a little bit better, and and uh, they're proud of me no matter what, and that makes me feel good. No doubt. But um, you know, I uh, uh, I'd like to get out there and give it one more shot in the PJ Tour before uh, before my time is is coming gone. To you, you talked a moment ago, <clears throat> pardon me about you know you're not you're not opposed to a little noise in the background when you're when you're playing and you're playing well. Are, does, does the crowd energize when that when a birdie putt falls and the crowd you know roars for you and you know you're getting the claps and all that sort of thing you know in between the, the green and the next tee and you, does does that help you start getting on a roll do you do you feel the energy from the crowd? Yeah, I mean I think internally I do. I mean anybody that's watched me play golf, you know, there's we're all different out there. I mean, uh, you know, I know that the fans, you know, now they want to see guys really getting pumped up and excited, the fist pumps. You know, Keegan Bradley's a perfect example of that. Um, you know, he feeds off that energy. I mean, I kind of internally fed off of it. I mean, I I uh, uh, I was never really one to, to you know to just pump my fists and and do anything. I mean, even when I won, I kind of made a it was kind of a lame fist pump, you know, that I gave after I hit the shot, you know. And it's just not my personality. But I but I, I tell you what, I mean, I do feed off that inside i mean i i feel great i like to respond to the fans uh or i did you know <laughs> i was playing but um we're all so different out there and and it seems to be that a lot of these a lot of the fans and the media they want us to be that way um they want a lot of keegan's to show some excitement out there and i think it's in all of us we're just not all comfortable bringing it out and um so yeah, internally I, I I felt it. I felt the love. I I uh, I appreciated it, and um, you know I did my best to kind of keep rolling with it. And um, you know some of the guys are they may make a few birdies and they keep on going, and, and some of the guys you know make a few birdies and they try to just hold on. So um, 
you know, we're all different. It is ultimately entertainment, what we're doing out there. And I think a lot of yeah. us kind of failed to realize that over the course of our careers. Now, you know, it is my job. It is our job. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've told people this. I'm like, look, if you want to pay me a salary and you want to rank me wherever you want to rank me uh, and pay me, I will go for every par five. I'll try to drive every par four green. I'll run around and high-five everybody on every green. I'll sign <laughs> while I'm playing. But it's just not the case. It's just you're just not able to do that. You have to have some sort right. of self-control out there. And, um, you know, uh, I guess you just can't always go for it. Now, there's going to be a lot of people that argue me. That's a great line in 10 Cup. You know, the, the lady says, I've never been with a man that always went for it. And uh, there is, I see that in some guys. And, and uh, there are parts of me that wish that I would have been a little bit more like that in, in my younger days. But isn't it crazy? We all can look back on things. Like, you know, if I just would have done this just a little bit differently, it really wasn't been so bad, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, those are some of the things I look back on and think, oh, you know, maybe I should have been a little bit more aggressive or maybe I should have been, been a little bit more in tune with with my fans and, and high fives and, and all those types of things. But, you know, you live your life as it comes, as it presents itself, and uh, you deal with it. You just hope that when, you, when your career is over and your life is over, you look back and, and most of the things that you did made a difference, and, and uh, you know, you can look yourself in the mirror every day and feel like, you know, I'm giving 100%, and uh, and that, that's all you yeah. can do. We all have regrets. We all will have regrets, and, um, you know, those are some of the things that I wish in my career, my golfing career, that I wish I could have, uh, you know, maybe done a little differently. Now you say, you know, you're looking forward to, you know, getting out on the on the senior PGA Tour. and it, would, would it be different out there? Because, you know, typically on the Champions Tour, there aren't cuts. So if, you, if you're yeah. in an event, you're in the event. So, you know, does it give you an opportunity to, to reinvent yourself a little bit and do some of the things? If you look back in your career and you have some regrets of not doing this or that to, you know, to, to change that on the Champions Tour? Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe you do. Uh, you know, look, those guys are so good. I mean, look at look at Bernard Langer, what he's doing. Um, oh, again, yeah. you know, the PGA Tour has so many things you're playing for. You know, you're playing for, you know, FedEx Cup points. You're you're playing for your your position in the playoffs. You're playing to, to finish you know high enough in the money list to get in the invitational. There's so many things to play for, and now you're starting to see that in the in the Champions Tour, the Charles Schwab Cup. I mean, these guys are grinding. They really want to win. I mean, they were competitors. That competitive fire doesn't leave. Uh, it never leaves you. And, uh, you know, I think what I'm seeing from the guys out there is that they enjoy being around each other's company. I mean, even at my age, I'm 45. When I, you know, I get into a PGA Tour event or the PGA Championship or whatever it may be, I go into the locker room or I go into the players' dining. There's a lot of people I don't know who are. There's a lot of wives. There's a lot of girlfriends. There's a lot of players that are just young. And, and because I don't, I'm not as active on the tour, I don't follow, I don't follow the tour very much. And so, um, you know, and that's what you hear about the guys on Champions Tour. I know Lee Jansen came out last week and played, and I heard, you know, they were just giddy, you know, giddy little kids to be out there. And, um, you know, to maybe get away from the pressures of, of all these things, you know, you got to meet the expectations of your fans, your family, your sponsors. Um, there's all these things that you have to do, and we all feel that in our jobs, you know, whether you're in sales and you got to meet a quarter at the end of the month or whatever it is. There's all these pressures that you have to feel. And, um, you know, ours are just a lot more public, I suppose. And, um, you know, from the sense that I'm getting out there is these guys are having a great time. Uh, they still want to win. Um, but it's just a lot more fun. There's a lot more stories. You can relax a little bit. And uh, Skip Kendall yeah. sent out a tweet last week, and he said, I'm on the range at 4 o'clock. Nobody's here. Everybody must be going for the early bird special. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> um, you know, he's, you know, he's uh, – uh, this is first week out there, and I know how excited he is. So I look forward to getting out there. You're uh, you're exempt to play in the PGA Championship until you're 65 years old. So you got <laughs> to play earlier this year, you know, at Valhalla. You, you talk about the competitive fire and kind of you know, looking back at you know at, at 03. Does it does being in that arena, you know, the PGA Championship, having won there, being a part of that event, does it get you? You talk about amped up a little. Does it get you a little more amped up for that tournament than maybe any other? I think it does when you're playing well. Uh, you know, the last couple of years have really kind of been a struggle. You know, this year actually was was playing okay. Um, you know, for anybody that doesn't know, I've had two heart surgeries this year, and I'm on a bunch of medication that doesn't always agree with me when it's late in the afternoon or it's hot. And I've really had to work my 
my way through that. Uh, spent a lot of time with my doctor in trying to figure these things out, and um, it's difficult. It's difficult to play. I have my great, I have my good days, I have my bad days, and yeah. Friday was a bad day. But I, um, you know, when you're playing well, all these tournaments they're they're, they're fun to be in. Um, you you, you uh, relish the opportunity to play a, a challenging golf course, and when you're not playing so well. Man, you don't want to be there. And uh, yeah. I felt like I was playing okay. I mean, I hadn't hadn't played a lot of tournament golf this year, and um, so I didn't have a lot of you know playing experience. And uh, this year, I only played Valhalla one other time, um, you know, a couple of years ago. But but uh, it's just a, it's a tough test. The eyes are definitely not on me, and I and I felt so. There were parts of me that felt kind of bad. Um, I think, you know, I see the trophy and I just, you know, I look back and I was like, oh, I wish I was just playing a little bit better golf. But um, I do love it. I do love the fact that when I get announced as a 2003 PGA champion, it's, uh, it's a feeling of, you know, satisfaction, gratification, uh, all those things, um, of all the hard work that I put in, you know, all those years, you know, to finally to knock one of those things off. I think I was derailed a lot by a shoulder surgery. Which Dr. Andrews fixed in 2008, and then um, you know this heart problem I've, I've got. You know, it's just um, I look back at these things like, now well, I guess my I said earlier, my, maybe my time has kind of come and gone. But when I tee off the PJ Championship and I'm announced as a winner, it uh, it means a great deal to me, and it just does, it takes me back to '03 because I think about that tournament, that championship, and and, and what it was, and what it meant to me to uh, uh, to be the champion. So. Um, you know, I, I I love it. I think I can still compete. You won't see me there when I'm 65, and I'm, <laughs> you may not see me there in another another 10 years. The golf courses are getting so long now. But uh, anyhow, I got the little ones getting in the car with me, so we're heading to a soccer tournament. Very nice. Good for you. I hope I hope he, your son does really well. I can't thank you enough, Sean, for taking time out of your Saturday morning to be a part of the show. You're fantastic. I love talking to you. Goodness knows I could talk to you all day long. I hope you'll come back and join us again real soon. And in the meantime, best of luck to you, your health, and uh, and to your son uh, at his soccer event. I'll tell him. I'll tell him. Chris, thanks so much. I always enjoy being on your show, and, and uh, call me anytime. You got my number. All right. Take care, Sean. All the best to you and thanks, your family. Chris. Okay. See you. Bye-bye. Sean McKeel, I tell you, Sean is such a delight to talk to, and I mean that sincerely. I could talk to Sean all day long, listen to him to tell stories about you know his time in and around the game, so many other things I wanted to get to. Unfortunately, we just don't have enough time, but great guy, and uh, I'm honored to have him as, uh, as part of the show uh, with me this morning. All right, it's time for us to put a bow on this one. I want to let you know about a great new book that's out. You heard me talk about it last week. It's called A Golden 18, written by Roger Schiffman, and the photography is done by one of our friends and one of the greatest photographers on the planet, Jim Mandeville. Jim, I'm sure you know, is the director of photography at the Nicholas Companies. The book showcase, showcases some of Mr. Nicholas's greatest golf course designs. The stories about the courses are great, and the photography is simply outstanding. In fact, they're so good. You're going to want to buy a second copy of the book so you can take some of the pictures out and frame them. Uh, To get your copy, go to nicholas.com and hover over the Products and Partners tab and then click on Books and Videos. If you love the game of golf and stunning photography, you're going to love this book. All right, everybody, it's time to put a bow on this episode. My sincere thanks to uh, Steve, Mona, and Sean McKeel for being such great guests this morning. And I thank you, of course, uh, for tuning in. We appreciate you the very most. Please check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate. You you heard me mention it a little bit uh, when Steve was with us on the show. Uh, My co-host, Bob Lazari, and our announcer, Joe Lajanusa. Every week, we talk to uh, members of the NFL and CFL. We are uh, official partners uh, with the NFL Alumni Association. So you want to talk about some great stories. When we're talking to the legends of the NFL, they've got great stories to share with us every single week. Please check us out uh, as well on Facebook. You can find us uh, next on the T and ThursdayNightTailgate.com. Give us a like. That's important to us too. And if you've got a comment, a question, or something you would like us to ask one of our guests that's going to be coming up on the show, let us know. We're glad to uh, ask that question for you on the air. You can find us online as well at nextonthetea.net and thursdaynighttailgate.com. By going to either site, you can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free and keep uh, up to date with uh, who our future guests are going to be. 
Thank you again for choosing to listen to Next on the Tee and being a part of the show with me this morning. I can't thank you enough. We appreciate you guys the very most. And until next week, hit them straight, my friends. the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. And participating Wendy's for a limited time. Meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. And participating Wendy's for a limited time. Meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii.